den pullers and whiskey and baked beans. Oh my. Wait, I think that's the wrong rhyme. What is up, you guys? It is the week after Memorial Day. Just so you know, I actually record these episodes like a week in advance, so for me, it's the day before Memorial Day, but yeah. Anyway, um, so I know last week we covered some really, really heavy stuff. I think this week is going to be not quite as harsh. Um, I mean, it's it's still brutal. It's murder. It's always brutal, but uh, you know, not like women locked in a basement brutal. So, um, before we get started, I, I know I usually touch on a little bit of, uh, true crime news, and, um, for those of you that may or may not have seen me on TikTok, which also, by the way, I have changed my TikTok handle to the Macaw Millennial for anybody who's interested, um, you know, I, I do want to talk for a brief second about the you know, Uvalde tragedy, um, the shooting at the elementary school. I know I'm having a very difficult time dealing with it and thinking about it, and I'm sure a lot of you are too. Um, I I don't want to preach politics. I don't want to preach gun control. We see enough of that all over the place. I'm not saying things don't need to happen. I'm just saying it's not my place to say whether or not it needs to happen because it doesn't make a difference what I say or think, um, you know, unfortunately, and, uh, not as a soul being anyway, but regardless, you know, my heart is aching for these poor families, every single one of them, and, you know, I, I'm sure all of us feel very much the same way, but I didn't want to just go through this week's episode and act like, didn't happen because these things don't change and they don't stop happening just because we choose to ignore them, unfortunately. Um, So yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So when I was doing the um, digging for this week's case, I actually just happened to be on the Oxygen website and um, you know, just digging around, seeing what I could find, and I came up with, I guess, a recent episode of Snapped, Killer Couples had come out, and um, they had covered this case. So I decided to watch it, I decided to poke around more and find some more information out, and I'm glad I did. This one turned out to be kind of interesting. Um, So let's go ahead and get started. This week, we are going to talk about the case of Laura Sinner. So, Laura Sinner was originally from Yakima, Washington, and grew up on a dairy farm, which, pause, insert adorableness here. Like, how cute is that? A dairy farm? Anyway, she was the youngest of three siblings. Um, She was born in October of 1977, and again, back to the dairy farm. It is so innocent-sounding. On top of, if you see pictures of Laura, she looks like the type of sweet young woman who would grow up on a dairy farm. Like, you'll know what I'm talking about as soon as you see her. She just has this this kind and innocent kind of look about her. Um, And again, how much cuter does it get than a dairy farm? Like, cows. 
I love cows. Uh, when I'm in the car with my husband and my daughter, I call them Bessies. All cows are the Bessies. My daughter will grow up calling cows Bessies. Anyway, um, so according to an interview conducted by the TV show Snapped Killer Couples, Laura had two older brothers, Jason and Ryan, who both fondly remember their sister um, being just an overall very happy little girl, always smiling and laughing. Both men claimed that their family growing up had been, you know, fairly normal. Um, they recalled things like going to the playground and playing at the pool together and just kind of coexisted as this very close-knit family. Um, they did admit that they would pick on and taunt their younger sister, but, you know, nothing out of the realm of what happens within a normal family, which I feel like just picking and taunting on your younger sibling is fairly tame. I can remember me and my sister getting into literal fist fights. I still have a mark on my chest from when my sister bit me, y'all. Bit me. Siblings is savage. Anyway, um, uh, the Sinner family did also unfortunately have to deal with another normal occurrence when um, Laura was about eight. Their parents ended up divorcing. Um, However, none of the kids had seemed especially affected by this from at least what I was able to find. Um, Laura seemed to shift a lot of her energy as she entered into her teenage years um, towards wanting to help others, which I feel is such an incredible attribute. I mean, when you're moving towards those teenage years, it's, it's kind of like coded into your DNA, like makeup, opposite sex or same sex, not judging. Uh, you know, fashion, all that other junk when you're a teenage girl. But for her to, like, want to shift that into putting it back into her community and helping other people is just well, you know, advanced for her years. Super, super mature. Um, she apparently volunteered alongside her mother in her spare time during high school. And um, when her mother had to decided <laughs> decided to take on a foster child um laura took an immediate shine to him so laura eventually realized how much she enjoyed helping people and she you know just i guess came to the realization that it was a, a personality trait of hers it's what she liked to do and she decided that she wanted to pursue that on a grander scale so she made the decision to join a christian mission um, just before her sophomore year of college in Aberdeen, Washington. Uh, real quick, I don't really know too much about how Christian missions work. Um, if somebody would like to email me or send me a thing to explain, I'm assuming that, like, within, like, whatever youth group or church that you're in, you all kind of decide you're going to go and devote time volunteering like you know in the name of god to help things in like maybe a rundown community or a, a place that's been hit by tragedy things like that but maybe i'm wrong i don't know um but regardless she joined a christian mission before a sophomore year of college and um yeah, so she had been working in a cafeteria food line when she had noticed that a particular boy about her age was making multiple trips through the line as well as trying to catch her attention. Ooh la la. Now I'm sure Laura was thinking, my, 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 who is this piece of eye candy? So let me tell you, 
Tim Smith was this piece of eye candy, and he was originally from Redding, California, but he had moved to Washington because he just wanted a change of scenery, just wanted to switch things up. Um, According to sources close to the couple, Tim had been so enamored by Laura that he had also decided to begin volunteering at the mission um, just so he could have the opportunity to get to know her better, which adorbs super super cute i can't i'm a sucker for a love story me and my husband are high school sweethearts so any kind of like young love i am such a sap for Ugh. anyway um apparently laura felt the same and they had decided to continue to see each other um throughout the duration of the summer um oh sorry i got a little caught up caught through my notes um, they continued to see each other throughout and until the end of the summer. Um, after Laura had reported him constantly asking her to pay for things while they were together. Um, so the couple broke up. So what I'm guessing happened was like, you know, throughout the summer, they would say, like, go to the movies. And they'd show up at the counter and he'd be like, oh, crap, I left my wallet at home. Hey, Laura, can you uh, pick this up? So and she was just like over it by the end of the summer I guess I don't know um anyway but Laura was apparently devastated by the breakup and here's where things went from bad to actual worse 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 so after the breakup um Laura's mother very shortly after was diagnosed with leukemia when I say shortly after I mean not even a full two months later um it was apparently a very aggressive form of leukemia, and uh, her sons reported that she was diagnosed by October 8th, and she ended up passing away by Halloween of that same year, which I, I would say sounds crazy, but unfortunately I, um, you know, I, I don't really talk about it too much, but I just lost my grandfather um, this last September in a... Uh, kind of similar time span it was maybe about four to six weeks and uh cancer man it's it's not a joke it's, it's some rough stuff anyway um we know that laura had been really close with her mother obviously she volunteered with her all the time so when she did in fact pass away she was just desolate um she was so beside herself upset and i i can only imagine your parents are divorced you're getting older you're in college and you just had this breakup with somebody who you really like connected with over you know what feels like kind of surface issues i mean at that age is money but you know i'm not saying it's not important i mean that's like the number one things couples argue about is money so it could have turned into worse over time but at that time it feels like a surface issue given the severity of everything else going on in her life um so with that in mind, she actually reached back out to Tim, um, probably in an effort to find some comfort through, you know, f familiarity. She, she knew Tim. He knew her. She was comfortable with him. She just needed somebody to listen who would understand what she was going through on a personal level. And, you know, Tim, I feel like, was happy to offer that. So... In March of 1998, Laura had decided that she just needed a completely new start. She, you know, 
everything was rough. She was having a really hard time with it all, but she'd reach back out to Tim and, you know, if she ever wanted to feel happy again, she needed to completely start over. So her and Tim had agreed that they were going to drive to Redding, California so that she could meet Tim's family and maybe discuss the possibilities of their future as a couple. So they were looking to maybe give it another try. And in fact, it wasn't even just that they were trying to give it another try. They were pretty dead set on getting back together upon leaving for this trip because a big part of this trip was um, for them to start making plans towards getting married and beginning a life together. Um, unfortunately, this was also reported the, the last time either of Laura's brothers would see her alive. So, on the morning of April 18th, 1998, Shasta County authorities got a call about an abandoned campsite in the Trinity Alps Nature Preserve. When officers came up to the scene, they found that the site had been set up by, um, for two tents, but only one remained alongside a mountain of trash and leftovers from the campers of the site. Um, you know, and they weren't super concerned at first. They, you know, stupid kids leaving trash all over the place and the tent up and all that. And who knows what went on? It wasn't until they started poking around a little more that they got concerned because as they did, they started spotting dried blood on the grass and around surrounding areas. So they started digging a little deeper and they were also able to come up on a family-sized can of baked beans that was heavily dented with dried blood on it. So, at this point, the investigative unit was called um, alongside with the cadaver dog to keep up with the search. Because, you know, dried blood, that's a quick, you know, red flag. Nah, we got to do something a little more here. This, something's not adding up. So, the dog, when it arrived on site, immediately beelined for the fire pit. So, you know, police began pulling the fire pit apart and they discovered the partially burnt remains of a woman. Uh, she had been naked with a black trash bag tied around her head and had several marks on the back of her head from being struck multiple times in addition to cuts and scrapes littering the rest of her body. So, as investigators continued to look through the scene, they finally found a small purse and inside it, unfortunately, was Laura Sinner's ID and wallet. Um, however, it would, in fact, take dental records to later determine that she was the victim. So when the coroner came on scene, they estimated that her body had been in its makeshift grave for about 10 to 15 days. And um, it kind of worked in their element because despite being out in the middle of the wilderness, it had been very well preserved underneath the um, brush and the debris. Um, so that animals and the elements couldn't, like, destroy any evidence. So the coroner had also been able to determine that the cause of death had been massive blunt force trauma and asphyxiation. So they were also able to make out ten—sorry, not ten, nine—nine deep cuts on her left wrist, and her blood—this is where it gets interesting—her blood alcohol content was 0.78. And for reference, the legal limit is 0 .08. So they even mentioned in the article that I read 
that being at a 0.4 to a 0.5 can lead to being, you know, borderline incapacitated. So like a 0.4, 0.5 is probably at that point of the night where like you're feeling real loosey-goosey, vision's a little blurry, you know how to get to the bathroom, but you can't remember walking into the stall kind of deal. Um, so a 0.78, like we're talking about a 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, a 0. 0.78 is off of the freaking charts. Like there was no way she could have drank that much and lived. There's just no way. And yet that was not the cause of her death. So, you know, investigators are finding this all to be very, very strange. So it was about this time that they, um, contacted Laura's father to notify him about Laura's death. And he was, you know, understandably devastated by the news. Um, and it wasn't until investigators began to ask him more questions that they started to get a footing on this case. When they began to ask him if he had any idea of who might have done this or, you know, when he had last spoken with his daughter, he responded that he had had a horrible feeling ever since Laura had left with her boyfriend to move to Reading about five weeks earlier because she hadn't contacted him at all since leaving. He had, in fact, been so concerned by the second week of her not reaching out that he had contacted the local authorities in Reading and had her labeled as a missing person, which was what finally had prompted Laura to call her father back. When they finally were in touch, Laura had told him that she and Tim had ultimately broken up. And, you know, Laura's father told her he would send her some money to get home. But Laura had actually told him, like, no, I, I want to stay. I want to stay in Reading regardless because I didn't just want to move over Tim. I, I needed a fresh start, and I still feel like I can find that here in California. Again, I feel like that is wise beyond her years, and I think that's good that she knew it was healthy for her and she needed to not go back home if she wanted a fresh start for herself. Not the safest thing to do. But, you know, I I get it, um, you know, so her father tried to convince her to come home. She didn't want it. Her brothers had even offered to help her come home and they shared sympathy for her during the breakup. But, you know, she still declined. She wanted to stay. She wanted to, you know, make a life for herself and just her and move forward. And really, who can blame her for that? Um her dad had just assumed when he hadn't heard anything more from her that maybe she had fixed things with Tim and ended up staying like she had already planned to. And um, this was enough of an initiative, though, for investigators to track down Tim and label him as a person of interest, if nothing else. Um, so when the police interviewed Tim, though, they were shocked when they told him of Laura's death and he just had this genuine reaction. Apparently, he had this absolutely stunned and horrified look upon his face when they said this to him. And, um, you know, that was when he told them that the last time he had seen her was March 30th, when, you know, he did, in fact, break up with her after them arguing constantly when they were together. And from what little he knew... Um, she had decided to stay with Tim's father at his house until she could find a place of her own as 
apparently in the short time that they had been together while in Reading, she had glown, glown, oh my god, can't ever be one full episode, never. She had grown very close to his family. Um, when asked about the last time he'd spoken with Laura, he admitted that it had been about three weeks ago. Um, he had claimed he didn't want to spend a lot of time at the house um, so that he could kind of give Laura her space, which is, you know, up until this point, everything that we've heard about Tim sounds about on par. He seems like a good guy, genuinely, and, you know, I, I can absolutely see him wanting to say, like, hey, you stay here with my family, you're comfortable with them, you're safe with them, you know, you seem to be comfortable and happy here and you need some space I need some space we have to figure our stuff out so you stay I'll go but anyway um so it was about um this time in the interview when Tim started talking about his brother and sister Paul and Lori um had come up and they had apparently gotten very close to Laura in the time that um, she'd been staying with them all. So Lori and Laura had become instant best friends and had confided that they felt like sisters. And, um, Laura had even went so far as to ask Lori to be her maid of honor during the time that she was still intending to marry Tim. So we're going to take a step back from the interview part and we're going to talk about the Smith children a bit more here. Um, so Tim and his siblings had spent their lives in and out of foster care systems. They were almost never in the same place and had suffered from a very severe dysfunctional upbringing. So while Tim was eventually able to move away and start a life of his own, um, his siblings were not so lucky. Uh, Lori at one point had ended up in a juvenile hall uh, detention during one of her foster care stays. And according to an article from Oxygen.com, Paul had apparently attacked staff and uh, residents while living in a group home and was even suspected of sexual abuse at one point. Um, once he got older, he also received an arrest record for robbing a prostitute at gunpoint. Classy. Now, it wasn't until more recently that all three of the siblings had moved in together under their father's roof, um, which Tim had never really been quite comfortable with. Um, and he attributed this to the fact that Tim and Paul were both allegedly sodomized by their father as children, which is what had landed all three kids in the foster care system while their father served time for his crimes. Um but once the family were all back under one roof, Lori and Paul had grown very close. Um, she had actually spent enough time with him that she ended up getting close with his friends and began dating and later becoming engaged to one of his friends, Eric Rubio. Um, it was also around the same time that all of these things were transpiring, like Tim and Laura coming to stay in Reading and all that, um, that Paul had met a girl. I say girl. Um, Amy Stevens. She was 14 years old, was also in the foster care system, and labeled a runaway. And Paul had apparently convinced her to run away from her foster home and come live with him. Yeah. 
super gross. Um, cause Paul was like 20. Yuck. Yuck. So, um, while police are still interviewing Tim about what could have happened, they were surprised because Amy, you know, Paul's 14-year-old girlfriend, um, had come into the station and had requested to speak with officers about Laura's death. And she also explained she was doing so because she was afraid for her life otherwise. So, officers were very taken aback by this quick turn of events, but obviously agreed if somebody's going to come in and offer up information on a murder investigation, why would they turn it down? So, once Amy sat down with investigators, she told a very detailed account of what had happened to Laura. Amy explained that herself, Paul, Lori, Eric, and Laura had all decided to go camping. During this trip, Paul had brought a lot of liquor. Um, I think they said that he had brought like six cases of beer, and I distinctly remember them saying he also brought along a gallon of whiskey. So, anyway, and uh, everyone had had a few drinks, and apparently Laura, at some point in the evening, had decided she wanted to start flirting with Paul. Um, Amy had said she tried to ignore it, even though she was livid. But once Laura actually kissed Paul on the cheek, Amy apparently had had enough. Amy claimed that she had walked up to Laura and punched her in the face and explained that it was flirting with PJ. Paul goes by PJ sometimes, too. Um, At this time, Amy claimed that Laura and Amy began fighting. Um, They were knocking each other to the ground, and Laura was beginning to overpower Amy. It was apparently at this point, Amy claimed Paul stepped in and began hitting her in the back of the head with a can of chili beans. And when that proved to not be super effective, uh, he picked up a dent puller and began to beat into the back of her head with it. So after hearing this account, investigators decided to reach out to Lori Smith and ask her to recount her her memories of that same evening. I'm just going to forewarn you guys. This whole thing turns into a little bit of like a uh, whisper down the lane kind of crap. So, Lori uh, came into the station voluntarily, and she claimed that Paul had pressured everyone into drinking that night. And then Paul had just suddenly attacked Laura for flirting with him. Which, I gotta be honest, it's a much less believable story than Amy's. So, she claimed that he began beating her with the can of beans um, before putting a rope around her neck and driving, driving, dragging her over by one of the tents and telling her, quote, I'm going to slice your wrists open. I'm going to make it look like you tried to kill yourself and then force the rest of the group to watch. Afterwards, Lori had said that Paul put a garbage bag over Laura's head and then began beating her with the dent puller. And after he was certain that she was dead, he forced Eric to help him bury the body and told them all that he would kill them if they breathed a word of what happened to anyone. So, obviously the two stories between the girls are very different. 
they were different enough that police had a hard time believing either one entirely. So, obviously, the next thing that they do is they have to question Eric and Paul. So, they knew the boys wouldn't obviously be as willing to talk as the girls probably had been. But thankfully, they had an advantage because the boys were already in police custody for an unrelated crime of stealing cars for parts to resell. What? What? If you... Oh, my God. Oh, God. Like, I'm glad they were caught. Don't get me wrong. I really am because, like, fuck these guys. But, like, if you just committed a murder, don't you think you'd maybe want to lay low for, like, a little while? Like, maybe a few months, not a couple of weeks here? Oh, honey, baby sugar pie. The stupidity. Anyway. So... According to the show Snapped Killer Couples, uh, they decided to question Eric first and were going to save Paul for last since, you know, the running theme, at least with the two girls' stories, was Paul was very much um, the ringleader. And from what information they had collected from his brother Tim, that also seemed to kind of hold up. So... Eric reportedly told the investigators that Laura had been getting on everyone's nerves during that camping trip and had stated that she was kind of like a fifth wheel, so to speak, as the rest of them were couples and they felt like she just really didn't belong there. Um, He told the police that, yes, Laura had been flirting with Paul and had kissed him. And yes, Amy had went over and punched her before taking the two-pound can of chili and hitting Laura on the back of the head with it. Now, he told police that when the girls started to fight, it looked like Laura was gaining the upper hand. And that was when Lori apparently stepped in and took the can and continued trying to hit Laura to get her off of Amy. So... After a bit, Laura became unconscious for a couple of minutes, and when she came to, Lori and Amy apparently helped her down to the creek to help her wash the blood out of her hair. And this was when they saw that her skull was cracked. And when they went back and told the boys, Paul brought out a razor blade. He claimed that Paul tied Laura up and asked her point blank, do you want me to cut your wrist or do you want to do it? So... Laura apparently tried to cut her own wrist, but it wasn't deep enough for Paul, who then took the knife and cut them deeper. And then he proceeded to pour alcohol in the wounds and then forced the gallon of whiskey towards her and forced her to drink it. So that clears up at least, you know, some of the arm marks, the nine deep cuts and the elevated blood alcohol content. So I think at this point, police are a little more, you know, reticent to believe uh, Eric than the girl's version of the story. So apparently Laura wasn't dying fast enough for them, which I can't believe I'm saying that sentence because it just sounds so absolutely fucking ridiculous. Um, But because of this, Lori then came over with the dent pillar and proceeded to nail her over and over in the back of the head. At some point, Paul took the dent puller from Lori because she was, quote, wasn't doing it hard enough and proceeded to continue beating her. So 
Once Laura had finally passed, Paul told Eric to help him bury her. And when Eric had said no, Paul had told him if he didn't help, he would kill Eric too. Um, so, once police had gathered this collection of events, they finally approached Paul, who, you know, corroborated the most closely with Eric's account. Paul Smith said at one point that in his hand, sorry, not in his hand, in his mind, he assumed that if her skull was crushed, he didn't think she was going to live. And so he didn't want her to suffer, hence that being why they killed her. So it didn't cross your mind to call the police, call an ambulance. You didn't you didn't have to kill her. You didn't have to contribute. It was pointless. So Paul, Eric, Lori, and Amy. Sorry. No, not sorry. The Lori and Laura really messed me up with this case, I gotta be honest with you, because it's a literal difference of one letter with the way their names are spelled. Sorry. Paul, Eric, Lori, and Amy were all indicted for the murder of Laura. So during the trial, Eric and Lori had pleaded guilty and agreed to testify against Paul in exchange for life sentences with parole. Paul was eventually convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Um, I was also able to find out that good old Paul had had a second life sentence tacked on for attempted murder of a prison guard in a failed prison escape. Like, this, this dude was just such bad news. I don't understand. Laura seemed so sweet and innocent, and I, I feel like in the... In the little, you know, episode I watched about this case, like, she was just, like, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. Because she wanted to help people. She was sweet. She was fairly innocent. You know, she was a nice girl. And this guy had a rap sheet as long as, you know, my leg. And it wasn't just for, like, some petty things. Like, these were, these were some hardcore shit he was pulling. And... You know, even if things weren't working out with Tim, she seemed like a good person, like a good catch. And the right person would be able to see that and appreciate that in her. And yet she wanted to flirt with this douche canoe. I don't get it. I, it doesn't add up to me. Like, I get the whole bad boy thing. Again, me and my husband were in high school. He was technically a bad boy. So, like, I have a weakness for it. But, like, still, there's a limit, guys. I mean, come on. Anyway, it was so... I, I just don't understand. She... Uh, I guess the heart wants what it wants. I don't know. I, I guess I'll get a little cliche for a minute here. Because I'm not victim-blaming. That is the last thing I am going to do. She was innocent in all of this. It didn't need to happen. And, you know... Fuck it. The heart wants what it wants. However, I should say, too, that, like, in that episode I watched, they did kind of relate Paul to being a, um, like, a pseudo-cult leader, so to speak, which is, like, you know, he felt like he was a, a cult leader in this little group of people he had constructed and, I guess, felt like he could tell them to do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted, which girl ended up dead. I guess he kind of could. 
fucked up. Anyway, so Amy obviously was a juvenile at this time. She went to juvenile court and she was given the maximal maximal juvenile sentence at the time, which would uh, result in her being held in custody until she reached 25 years of age, which means that she is now walking around in the public not loving that that's that's like another famous uh murder that happened i can't remember which one it is now oh my god uh i think it was in canada or something i think her name was like jazz or jasmine or something like that and she like killed her family but because she was a juvenile at the time um they could only give her like 25 years uh shoot if anybody remembers what that case is could you please send it to me because it's gonna drive me crazy Oh my god, at some point we'll probably talk about it. I'll come across it in one of the podcasts I listen to, I'm sure of it. But yeah, if you happen to remember it, send it to me, remind me, refresh my memory. Um, so, uh, one last thing is in 2015, Paul's original death sentence was overturned by the California Supreme Court and was changed over to life without the possibility of parole. Which, I don't know how I feel about that at least I I feel like when it comes to death sentence versus life in prison like some it's case to case like some things are like an eye for an eye other things are like yeah but what you did when people in prison find out what you did like you're you're never going to be able to go to the bathroom without using a donut again like it's it's not the same it's not the same so, you know, again, 100 shades of gray, nothing is black and white, so don't know how to feel about that. But again, not my, not my place. So, um, yeah, they, uh, when Laura passed away, we're going to get a little sentimental for a second. When she passed away, obviously, she left behind a hole in the hearts of her brothers and her family her father, that, you know, nothing can fill. Um, and they were interviewed for the show, Snapped Killer Couples, and it's so, it's so touching because you see her brother Ryan tearing up at the end when he starts talking about her, and he says what a beautiful person she was, and it's really heart-wrenching, guys, truly it is. Like, you can tell they were a family that really loved each other, and this was something that didn't need to happen. It, it did not need to happen. She did not need to die. And, you know, now these poor men are going to have to live the rest of their lives without their daughter or sister. And that's, that's heartbreaking. So, that is the case of Laura Sinner. I feel like this was a good case because almost everyone in this case got justice, aside from Amy. I mean, I know she was only 14, but, like, and I know we need to think of, like, reform and things like that but like 25 I, I don't know I, I feel like that's a conflicting situation but you know what what do you guys think so uh I wrote on here that I was gonna have to do some digging and try to figure out what next week's case was gonna be but that is not true I know what next week's case is gonna be it is going to be a long one but I promised you a couple of one-parter episodes for a while, and that is exactly what it is. It is a one-parter, and it is going to be 
good. I was getting so heated doing the research for next week's case, and I think you will too once you hear about it. Because um, I got to be honest, I, I vaguely remembered seeing some articles like in on like the newsstands and stuff like that about it when it came out. But I, I was too young personally to understand what was going on. So, again, I, I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, I put a lot of research into it. Like, I even paid for a subscription to, like, the Pittsburgh Gazette, I think it's called, <laughs> just so I can find more info for you guys. So, you're welcome. Um, anyway, I think that's all for this week. Uh, you can find me on Facebook with... Uh, our page slash our group there's a page and a group both are entitled the macaw millennial you can find me on tiktok at the macaw millennial i am sorry i have not been posting a lot of my dark creepy content um i spend like i feel like what feels like three hours a day on tiktok but i'm so busy scrolling and watching all the other stuff that i forget to post my own so again sorry um i will try to get a little better about that there is the email that you can reach me at it is available now if you have any questions or concerns or you want to share a story that i'd love to hear about um also if you're feeling spunky i'd love to see some ratings and reviews on spotify and apple oh i almost forgot i've been telling you guys for weeks i was going to try to get the podcast on more platforms and i did so apparently it is now on google podcast as well and you can find it on Amazon Music and Audible. I love Audible so much. I hope to God at some point they decide to want to sponsor me because I literally use Audible like once a day. They are not paying me for this right now. I am just a huge fan. I use them at least once a day. I listen to audiobooks constantly. When you have a toddler running around and you're an avid reader, that is the only way you get to read anymore. Um, so... They just got a little free sponsorship from me. Uh, but, you know, Audible, hit me up. Happy to happy to spread that love. Um, so, I think that's it. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of about it. So, that wraps it up for this week. Thank you for listening, and later, Gators.